Open them to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21 is where we will begin reading. We're continuing in our series of the five solas, and this morning we come to the fourth sola, solas Christus, Christ alone. I hope you could tell that's where we were moving from the songs that we sang this morning. I was shocked by what I heard. In fact, I was astounded, and it was hard for me to imagine. I was having a conversation with an unbelieving coworker, and he was relating a story, an experience that he had the previous Sunday at a local church. This was before I came here, all right? So, in my previous life, where I had unbelieving coworkers, right? He was relating the experience of the church service that he had gone to the Sunday previously. And he said something that, that shocked me. In the course of our discussion, he came and said, you know, I would have thought that I would have heard about Jesus on Sunday, but he was never mentioned. This observation was not from a seasoned Christian. It was not from someone who had gone to church all of his life, who had been to church service after church service after church service. These words came from someone with little background in the church. These came as words from someone who didn't believe. But he had the awareness enough and the understanding enough to have a certain expectation that he could go to church on Sunday and at very least hear something about Jesus Christ. But he was never mentioned. He was never spoken of. He must not have been sung about. He must not have been read about. He must not have been preached about from the pulpit. I mean, how is it that you can walk into a church on Sunday and not hear about Christ. I mean, after all, we call ourselves Christians. After all, we call ourselves evangelical. How can we be evangelical if we cut the evangel out of our churches? And if we're willing to cut him out of our churches... What does that say about the rest of our lives? One modern day theologian painted a picture of what he thought would be Satan's perfect world. If Satan could have the world just as he wanted it, what would it look like? And one of the things that he said as he painted that picture was that it would be a place where churches 
are full, but where Christ is never preached. Because there's something there when you come to church on Sunday, you think, I'm good, I have it all together. <laughs> I come here to get, get me a pick-me-up, to feel good. But something different happens when Christ is preached and when Christ is proclaimed. We come to a very dangerous place if we make Jesus Christ merely a supporting cast member in our own show. Where Christianity becomes about us and our felt needs, meeting our demands, fulfilling our fleshly desires... Satan does not attack and has no need to attack a church where Christ is not preached. There is no threat for Satan if we push Jesus aside. Here is the question Michael Horton asks in his book, Christless Christianity. It's a question that I think we must ask ourselves this morning. He says this, quote, Is the Bible God's story? centering on Christ's redeeming work that rewrites our stories? Or is it something we use to make our stories a little more exciting and interesting? Close quote. If Christ merely becomes an add-on in, in our lives, someone who will give us a little help, someone who will make us feel fulfilled, someone who is merely worth imitating in our lives as we bypass the real crisis of our life. We don't need Christ as a self-help guru who will somehow improve our existence. We need Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, who will save us from our sinful and damning existence. The danger that we need to be aware of is that we make everything about us Cutting Jesus Christ out of the, the picture, displacing Jesus Christ, is, is not just an attack on the very work and person of Jesus Christ, but it is a full-on affront against the Almighty God. Our diminishing and minimization of Christ is an attack on the very reputation of God and His holiness. It's time for us, as Christ's church, to ensure that Christ is at the center, that everything is about Him and not about us. We, as the body of Jesus Christ, must be swimming in the river of Christ alone. And this is a doctrine that makes us squirm in our seats because it takes any confidence that we would place in ourselves. And it puts it squarely on Jesus Christ and on Him alone. Too often, we would rather be lulled to sleep in our seats than be stripped of everything and anything that we could depend upon and rely upon. That we would somehow think those things would make us okay with God. We need to get back to in Christ alone. So let's read. If you would stand with me this morning as we read God's word together. Romans chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 21.
But now the righteousness of God has been manifest, manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, Teach us, and what we are not, make us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I wonder if we would put the task before us this morning of summing up the whole Bible in one sentence. If you could compose one single sentence to say, this is what the Bible is about. The whole story of the Bible from beginning to end, including all of the important parts, leaving nothing out. What would you say? What kind of sentence would you compose? I bet you would find that to be a daunting and even a challenging task. But it might be a profitable venture. What is the main point of the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? The whole Bible. What is the main point? I don't know about you, but you might be one of those people who jots down notes in their Bible, writes down things in the margin of their Bible. It's interesting. I find it interesting If you ever look at someone else's Bible who does that, to look at those notes that they might jot down on the side of their Bible. I thought, how apt for us, as we're thinking about the Reformation and the five solas, to listen to the side notes of Martin Luther. This is actually what he wrote in his Bible about these verses that we read this morning. Listen. He said, the chief point... And the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. That's what Martin Luther said about these verses in Romans 3, 21 through 26. He didn't just see that this passage was important in the epistle of Romans. He said, this is the chief point of the whole Bible. And even though we don't see it in our English translations, verses 21 through 26 is one sentence. It's one sentence that Paul writes. 
20th century Welsh preacher and pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, agrees with Luther as he states this, quote, It is no exaggeration to say that this section, that it is one of the greatest and most important sections in the whole of Scripture, close quote. And so, as we think about these verses this morning, how important are these verses for us? If you want to understand the Bible, the point of the Bible, what the Bible is about, we have to get to the heart of these verses, of what these verses say. And at the heart of this passage is Jesus Christ in His person and in His work. So, what do we learn about Christ alone in these verses? Number one this morning. Christ alone is God's plan for us from beginning to end. Christ alone is God's plan for us from beginning to end. There's a Latin phrase that became the theme of the Reformation. It's this, post tenebras lux. Now, for those of you who don't know Latin, like myself, let me translate that for us. After darkness, light. Post tenebra lux. It was the very description of what was happening in the world at that time of the Reformation. With the world shrouded in darkness... Even with those within the church adding to the darkness and the the confusion, with people in the world sitting in this darkness with no hope, with no joy, with no peace, light broke through. It was the light of the scriptures, the light of God's word that was dispelling the darkness. It was the light of the gospel that God used to so move people to bring them to himself. It was the light of the one who said, I am the light of the world. The light of Christ himself spreading over the face of the earth. It was that light that came to shine so brightly after such a time of darkness that it chased the darkness away. If light came after darkness, then joy came after despair. Then hope came after hopelessness. Then peace came after unrest. If after darkness, light is an apt description of the Reformation, I believe it's also an apt description of what we see happening in these verses. Our verses begin with this contrast. Do you see it there? Those first two two words, but now. This is a contrast to what Paul had just previously discussed. Paul had just said, no one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God. He also just said, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Those are some dark verses. 
And the question comes to us, how? How then will salvation come to us? How will we be saved? If all I have is a knowledge of my sin, that does me no good. Because knowing that I am a sinner and being forgiven of my sins are two completely different things. It doesn't matter how much I know myself to be a sinner if there's no forgiveness. It doesn't matter how much I see sin in my life if there is no way out. A knowledge of my sin only brings guilt and condemnation to my mind. It leaves me enslaved to my sin. That is darkness. That is despair. That is the mourning. That is the hopelessness that we were in. But Paul says, but now is the introduction of the light. It is the introduction of hope. It is the introduction of the way out. With this light is the righteousness of God. And Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God has been made known. Previously, it was not fully made known, but now it has been manifested. It's been shown how one can have a right standing, a right relationship with God. And so how has it been manifested? How has it been shown? How has it been put on display? It's manifested in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. But now is the contrast between the Old Testament the law, which brought a knowledge of our sin, and the coming of the new covenant in the sending of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the work that He accomplished by dying on the cross. That's where we find forgiveness of our sin. And look at what He says here. This righteousness of God has been manifested, how? Apart from the law. It's not our works that get us right before God. It's not our obedience. No. It's the righteousness of God that has been manifested because of God's grace. And, and this is not God's plan B. Well, plan A was the law and all these rules. And if people just kept all of those rules and just kept the law, then they would have been made right with God. No. The purpose of the law was to show people they were sinners. <laughs> you can never keep the law. That, that, that we've all broken the law. Even the Ten Commandments. We've broken the spirit of the Ten Commandments. Each and every one of us. The law was meant to show us that we're needy sinners. But now Jesus Christ has come. To show us that the way to be made right with God is through Him. It's not through the law. And this is what the law and the prophets testify to. These words here, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the law and the prophets is another way for Paul to say all of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, everything, the beginning, the law, the end, the prophets, and everything in between was all pointing to this righteousness that would be manifested. All of the Old Testament is anticipating what God would do 
through Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament is pointing to and towards the gospel. It all points to Christ alone. And I, In fact, one of the reasons for the law in the Old Testament is to show its inadequacy over and over and over again. Just think for a moment this morning. The altar of Israel, where priests would have offered sacrifices, they would offer sacrifices for people's sins, and they would offer those sacrifices over and over and over and over again. And you, if you were an Israelite, you would have to keep bringing these sacrifices over and over and over again for your sin. Why? Because those sacrifices weren't able to completely cleanse you of your sin. Because those repetitious sacrifices weren't enough. All those repetitious sacrifices pointed to the fact that these aren't enough. There has to be a better sacrifice. And that sacrifice was coming in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews 10, 11 through 12. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When is it going to be enough? When are all the sacrifices going to be enough? When is enough payment going to be made for our sins? When are we going to be cleansed? In Christ it is enough. In Christ it is where your sins are fully paid for. This was God's plan for us from the beginning. This is how God planned to bring us salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He says that this righteousness is to be received through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We've already talked about faith and in faith alone. And our world, in fact, loves to tell us to have faith. Our world loves to tell us to believe. But these words become meaningless if you have faith in the wrong thing or believe the wrong thing. It's not just enough to possess faith. It is not just enough to believe our faith and our belief is in Jesus Christ. Let us be careful how we talk, Christians. I remember having a conversation with a Christian, and he was talking about his boss, and he said, well, she's not a Christian, but she is faith-filled. She's not a Christian, but she is faith-filled. Let me ask you a question. What does that mean? I have no idea what in the world that means. Filled with what faith? Just some nebulous faith? Just some kind of blind belief? 
A faith-filled person has nothing if that faith is not in Jesus Christ. If you miss the object of our faith, if you miss the person of Jesus Christ, if you miss who he is, if you miss what he has done, if you skip over Jesus Christ, if you ignore Jesus Christ, if you attempt to cut Jesus Christ out, if you want spirituality but you don't want Christ, if you want forgiveness but not the cross, if you want God but not the Son of God, you haven't just sat on the wrong seat of the plane, you've missed the plane altogether. The righteousness that comes from God only comes to us through our faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And it comes to all those who believe in him. There is no distinction. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. Everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. There is no other plan. There is no other way to get to God. God's plan is Christ alone. And the only way for you to be a part of God's plan is to believe and trust in Christ alone. Number two, Christ alone is God's answer to our greatest problem. Christ alone is God's answer to our greatest problem. I want us to think for a moment this morning, what is, what's your greatest problem? What, what is it that troubles you the most? What is that thing that you cannot shake no matter how hard you try? What's that thing that plagues you that you have no control over? Is your greatest problem wealth, that you lack money, you've fallen on hard times, that you're in a financial pickle and bind, that you want more money? Is money your greatest problem? Is health your greatest problem? Does getting healthy elude you? You would give anything to have a physical body that is healthy, that is free from aches and pains, that is free from disease. If you could only have control over your health problems and health concerns, then you could rid yourself of your greatest problem, right? Is happiness your greatest problem? Does happiness constantly elude you? You know you want happiness, but you can't get it no matter how hard you try. It's like sand that is sifting through your fingers. Is happiness... And the lack of happiness, your greatest problem. So we think about what maybe is our greatest problem, and often people see those things as their greatest problem. That's why, that's why the health and wealth, quote-unquote, gospel is so attractive to people, because they think that those things are their greatest problem. If Jesus just makes me rich, if Jesus just makes me healthy, if Jesus just makes me happy, then I'll be all right. Is that why we're here today? Ask that question to your neighbor for a moment. What's your greatest problem? Well, I've got at least two cars in my garage. I have a nice house. I have kids that I love. 
I take nice vacations. In fact, my greatest problem is, do I go to the beach for vacation or do I go to the mountains for vacation? That's my greatest problem. I've got my life pretty well under control, thank you very much. We need to see, and we need to help people see that their greatest problem is not defined by all those external things around them. There is more to life than all of those things. And Paul tells us here this morning, what is our greatest problem? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest problem is that we are sinners. This is the human condition. No one, no one except Christ has escaped this condition. And it isn't a problem that we stumble into. This isn't a problem, you know, like, like I was, you know, uh, it's just a product of my environment that I turned out like this. Uh, you know, I, I, when I was a baby, I had it all together. <laughs> you know, I was doing really good until I threw that first tantrum. Now, what does the Bible teach us? You're born a sinner. In fact, when my wife and I were about to have our first child, I, I said he was a spawn of Satan. As a reminder, I'm birthing a sinner. He's not coming out perfect. His greatest need from the moment he breathes his first breath is that he needs Jesus Christ. That's his greatest problem. That's my greatest problem. That's our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is that we stand condemned before God as sinners deserving His wrath and punishment because of our sin. Because, as the Bible teaches us, we are those who are in Adam. Adam and Eve were the first sinners, and now all those who are born are born in Adam. And so we all are in sin because all of us are in Adam. And in that moment that we feel the weight of this great problem, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for all have sinned and have not lived the way that God has designed us to live. All of us have sinned and rebelled against God in our hearts and gone against Him and wanted our own way rather than His way, wanted to glorify something else than glorify the Creator God who made us and made us to worship Him and praise Him. And that same breath where we feel the weight of our sin upon us, Paul brings the relief. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Paul provides the answer to our problem. A problem that Paul doesn't resolve, but a problem that, in fact, God resolves. There is a way to be justified, to be right, to be innocent, to be perfect, 
before God. There is a way to be found right in God's eyes, and it comes to us as people who don't deserve it. It's a gift. So, how is it that we are declared right in God's eyes? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, this word redemption speaks to a payment that is made to release someone from their captivity or their bondage. If we were to look in the Bible at the idea of redemption, we would see it shine brightly in the event of the exodus. God's people were enslaved in the land of Egypt. They served hard taskmasters. It appeared that there was no way out. But God provided a way out. He raised up Moses. He brought plagues upon the nation of Egypt, which culminated in the killing of the firstborn. But the Israelites escaped this plague by killing a lamb, and taking that lamb's blood and smearing it on the doorpost and the lintel of the door, roasting the lamb and then eating the lamb. And it would happen that as the destroyer passed through the land, that he would see the blood on the doorposts and that he would pass over those houses, preserving the firstborn that was inside. God redeemed Israel. By the blood of a lamb. He provided a payment so that they could escape and be rescued. The Bible tells us that God is the Redeemer. And now the redemption comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had to pay the price of redemption. That is the ransom that he paid in order to bring about the forgiveness and the freedom that we so desperately need. Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The price of redemption is the very person very life of Jesus Christ and his blood spilt when he died on the cross. We even see the full payment made there on the cross in John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This word, it is finished has a beautiful word picture that goes with it in three different areas of life. First, a builder would use this word, it is finished. As they drove the last nail into what they were building, it is finished. It's done. An artist would use this word, it is finished, with the last stroke of their brush on the canvas. A debt collector would use this word, it is finished, when on the receipt he would write, Paid in full. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He paid the price fully, in 
gospel. There's no, no longer anything that we owe. It's in Christ's death that He has redeemed us. And redemption is more than just being freed. Redemption is belonging to Christ Jesus. We are His sheep. He is our good shepherd. And He has set us free. Not so that we can just go and live any way that we want to. No, He's freed us, and so now we have this desire to follow Him. We willingly follow Him as our head. And there's a question, though, that still might linger in our mind that Paul has to clarify here in verse 25. The question is this, that we still might have. Well, how is it? How is it that that I have escaped God's wrath? God's wrath is what sinners deserve. God's wrath is the just punishment we deserve because of our sin. Let's be honest this morning. We don't like to talk about God's wrath. But God's wrath is what we deserve because our sin is an attack, an affront on God's holiness. But God provided a way for His wrath to be appeased. This is the idea behind the word propitiation, whom God put forward. So God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood, as an appeasement, as a satisfaction. God's wrath, his righteous anger was appeased and was averted because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and because of the blood that was spilt. The price of our ransom is the blood of Jesus Christ, the very giving of his life, a price that we could never pay. A price that we could never pay because we would have been an imperfect sacrifice, a blemished sacrifice. God's wrath is satisfied in the sacrifice of Christ because he was the one who was bearing our sin as the perfect, unblemished sacrifice, as the one who knew no sin. He was dying the death that we deserved to die. He was bearing the wrath of God that should have been upon us. He completely extinguished God's wrath. That means that there is no more of God's wrath reserved for you. God poured out all of His wrath that was reserved for us upon His Son on the cross. And Christ drank that cup and He drank it down to its dregs. Jesus did not just bear some of God's wrath. He did not just bear most of God's wrath for us. He bore all of God's wrath reserved for us. So now there is no longer any wrath for believers, but only God's love. Are you fearful of God's wrath? Are you fearful that in your mind you would think, surely there's still something left for me to pay? Are you afraid that God is out to get you? I remember working with a gentleman, again, in my previous life, who pinched his finger while we were working and he mumbled, that's God out to get me. 
I'm not sure if that was God out to get him or if it's just merely his own carelessness. But it made me think, I wonder how many Christians view God that way. And that when things happen to us in our world, when we experience pain or suffering or hardships or trials, whether it's as small as a finger pinch, we would think, God's out to get me. There's something I've done, and now God is repaying me for what I have done. God is getting me back. That when I sin, sin, there is still some wrath that might be preserved for me. No. God's heart is filled with love for us. There is no more wrath to be paid. Jesus paid it all. The Bible does teach us that he does discipline us and grow us and mature us in our faith. But why does he do that? Because he loves us. This is the grace that's been given to us that we receive by faith. What good news is there for us that there is no more wrath, not one ounce, not one drop of God's wrath is left waiting for you to pay. God is not out there waiting to get you. God is out there wanting to lavish his love and pour his love into you. The love prominently displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. For us who are in Jesus Christ, there is no need to fear God's wrath. Number three this morning, finally, number three. Christ alone is God's proclamation of his perfection. Christ alone is God's proclamation to us of his perfection. As we come to the end of our passage here, we're left with another question in our minds. Why is the cross of Christ necessary? Wasn't there some other way? I mean, did Jesus Christ really have to die? Did he really have to die on the cross? In order to understand and answer that question, we have to have a proper understanding of God. In our world today, our world likes to try to make our God a schizophrenic God. You ever heard them say this? Well, you have the God of the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament, he's an angry God. He's a wrathful God. He's a mean God. That's the God of the Old Testament. But the God of the New Testament, well, that's a God of love and a God of compassion and a God of mercy and a God of, of grace. I find that those who would make such a distinction have never read the Bible very carefully or read the Bible in its entirety. If they would have, they would see God's love and mercy and grace and compassion in the Old Testament. They would also see that in the New Testament that there is God's wrath, but that this is not a capricious wrath. It's a holy and just wrath. And we are those who feel this tension. We believe that God is a holy God. And that being a holy God, that He cannot 
tolerate or allow sin and wickedness and evil to continue. And so he then, being a holy God, is also a just God. And bringing justice to those sins that are done against him. But we also believe that God is a loving God. That he is a gracious God. That he is a compassionate God. Since God is a holy and righteous God, he has the right to execute perfect justice towards those who sin against him and to execute that justice immediately if he so chooses. But how does God's justice and how does God's love, how do those exist at the same time? And this is where we, where we have to tread very carefully because if we fudge either way, we can be lying about who God is. One of the things that we see from these verses is that, that God's very reputation is at stake. If we get these verses wrong, we can get Jesus Christ wrong, but we can also get God wrong, who God is. The tension of God's holy justice and the tension of God's love is only resolved in the cross of Jesus Christ. The problem is that oftentimes we don't feel this tension in our lives, and the problem is, is that oftentimes we are good at diminishing the holiness of God. We're good at bringing God down to our own level. We're good at kind of excusing and saying, well, maybe God really doesn't demand what the Bible says He demands. And we're also good at bringing ourselves up, making ourselves look better than we really are, more righteous than we really are. And we need to see that in our sin, we cannot stand before a holy God. In our sin, we deserve eternal punishment. And that's only resolved, only relieved on the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says this, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Here this, this idea of he passed over former sins in his divine forbearance has this idea going back to the Old Testament. And so when those Old Testament believers, when they sinned, he passed over those sins for a time. He didn't ignore those sins. He didn't pretend as if those sins didn't happen or didn't exist. It does mean that he postponed and forgave people's sins without the full satisfaction of payment or penalty. And how was God able to postpone and forgive people's sin without full satisfaction of payment or penalty? God was able to do that because he looked forward to the cross where the penalty would be paid in full. Where satisfaction would be made. God has shown in the cross that his actions in the Old Testament were in complete accord with his character. The cross of Jesus Christ does not merely vindicate God's actions in the past, before the cross, 
but even now his righteousness is put on display. That's verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. God shows his perfection now, and he shows it as he is the just and the justifier. For God to be just, it means that there were righteous demands that needed to be met because of people's sins. God could not just sweep people's sin under the rug. No, God's justice meant that those righteous demands had to be met. The penalty had to be paid. The punishment had to take place. And it's in Jesus Christ on the cross where those righteous demands were resolved. He paid the price for our sins. He took the punishment we deserved. He died the death which should have been ours. He was forsaken by the Father when we should have been forsaken by the Father. God's being the just, being the just God that He is, is seen when we look at the cross. But He's also called this, and the justifier. God provides salvation. God makes a way for us to be in his presence. God, as the justifier, is the life giver. He justifies and forgives the sin now of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the immense, deep, vast love of God for us. That God can now declare the guilty innocent. That now... God can forgive the sinner completely. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How are we able to talk about this today and talk about the person and work of Christ alone and not make the offer of Jesus Christ. God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. There is no other way to God. And so if this morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus and in Him alone, today, right now, you can. You can accept and receive by faith what Jesus Christ has done through dying on the cross So that you might no longer be under God's wrath, but under God's love and grace. You can find forgiveness of your sin at the cross right now. You can find life in the resurrected Savior today by simply turning of your sins, repenting of your sins, saying, saying, God, I no longer want those sins, but I want Jesus. I'm embracing Him. I'm trusting Him that He's done everything for me on the cross and now I'm living for him it's at the cross where God's love and justice meet our salvation is holy and just because in Jesus we have a savior who perfectly meets our need and in his divine human work he alone secures our redemption reconciliation and justification before God Christ is not the supporting actor in our story. We don't just add him into our story to make it a little bit more interesting, to make it a little bit more exciting. No, he completely rewrites our story, and that work is the greatest work that has been done. And that is why our lives and our church 
must be committed to the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ above else and Him alone. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, I live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is in Christ alone that we live. There is no other way. There is no other plan. He paid the price that we could never pay. He paid it fully for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see the need for Christ and Christ alone to be at the center of who we are, why we live, what we do, why we do it. Lord, we pray and ask that Jesus Christ would be preached in this church and that His name, the message of the gospel might go forth from this church into this community and reach people with the truth that God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus and in Him alone. And that's why we can say all glory be to Christ our King. We pray this in His name. Amen.